This is No Love Live with Pastor Tim Warholic. Tim is the senior pastor of Paradise Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas, Nevada. All right, we're in Acts chapter 2. Grant, can you turn these lights back on for me just so I can see my Bible a little bit better? We, we covered Pentecost uh, last week, correct? 1 through 13 is where we stopped, I believe. But for the sake of continuity and, and such, I'm going to read through Pentecost again. We'll make a couple comments and then... We'll start from 14 and get into the bulk of our study. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and begun to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now I want to take note here, for people who say that the evidence of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues, um, you have to notice here that, that it's the Spirit that gave them utterance. And most of the churches today that say if you don't speak in tongues, then you're not saved because you don't have the gift of the Holy Spirit, they just randomly or whenever they want can just start speaking in tongues. But the day of Pentecost, it was the Holy Spirit that was giving them utterance, not them conjuring up some kind of gift that they had been given. Does that make sense? So their theology has to line up with the Bible. There's huge holes in it. And that's one of the things that we notice that the Holy Spirit was the one that, that came upon these people with tongues of fire and, and would give them utterance to say these things. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Point number two, how often do these churches actually speak foreign languages that are intelligible? Not very often. Now, does this still happen? As somebody who's been on the mission field, who's on the mission field for 10 years and have many other missionary friends and have, have heard missionary stories, I have heard stories of actual people speaking to somebody in their language and never studied it a day in their life. And it was a sharing of the gospel. Is that possible? Absolutely. That would be more of a genuine evidence of the gift of tongues in that context. So is it supernatural in that you don't have to speak in another language? Absolutely. Paul says, I'd rather speak, uh, you know, 10 intelligible words to you than thousands of words in another tongue that you don't understand. So that the, the, the few words that I speak can bring understanding when the gift of tongues without an interpreter does not have understanding. But this specifically for Pentecost, they were speaking languages. They were not just babbling. Then they were all amazed and marveled, verse 7, saying to one another, Look, are not all these Galileans, and how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Now, there's, that's a big pocket right there. All these places are unique places. But he says visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes. Peter's the one that ended up going to Rome, right, to, to pastor, if you will, later on the, the Roman church. Paul writes one of the, arguably, the greatest epistles in the New Testament to the Roman church. Uh, so there was a high Jewish population. It was the capital of the world at that time. And yes, God wanted to impact that area. So there's people that had come from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Everybody knows what a proselyte is, right? A proselyte is a non-Jew that converted to Judaism. So they would be born a Gentile, a Greek, or something else, and they would have converted to and hold to the traditions of the Jews to become or identify with the Jewish faith. 
Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own languages, the wonderful works of God, so that we're all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. Notice this for, with me in verse 11. Take note, if you'd like to underline. It says, we hear them speaking in our own tongues. What were they speaking? The wonderful works of God. Now, if they were exercising the gift of tongues and what they were saying was the wonderful works of God, is there anywhere else in the Bible that says you can speak in a tongue and it can also be the gift of prophecy? No, there's nowhere else. The gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues are two different gifts. Another erroneous uh, fact about these churches who are... Um, overzealous with particularly the gift of tongues is they'll say, oh, I have a word from the Lord. I should have bought a Honda, but I bought a Hyundai. Oh, this means that the Lord is speaking and saying to you that you guys need to go over to McDonald's afterwards. We'll all go over together. We can all get something from the dollar menu, but everybody has to buy Pastor Tim a McFlurry. And he'll take them home and put them in his freezer and eat them when he's ready. But th thus saith the Lord. That is not what the gift of tongues is supposed to be. It's not what it looks like. So if you're ever in the context of people speaking in tongues and, and, and you say, well, I wonder if there's an interpreter and somebody says, I'm an interpreter. They're, they're talking about how, you know, Jesus is coming back next Tuesday. You can say double whammy. The Bible says no man knows the day or the hour, but it was by the spirit. But the, 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 the gift of tongues is for the praising and worshiping of God and speaking of the wonderful works of God. It's not to give you insider information about what's going to happen at the hockey game next week, which would be cool, but that's just not the way that it works. Paul says that he sometimes doesn't have words and, and he speaks in groanings and utterances of the Spirit, right? So he comes to the point, and others have said this too, but he comes to the point that what he wants to express about God cannot be put into the any of the languages that he spoke. There's no words to describe it. So the Spirit makes intercession. The Spirit prays. Some people would attach that verse to the gift of tongues. And then what is being said by the Spirit, there, there is a relief almost in that there's an expression of the goodness of God and there's a, a communion or a communicating of how you feel about God, the wonderful works of God. So they're amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they're, full of, they're making fun of them, acting like they're drunk. But Peter, verse 14, this is where we left off, standing up with the 11, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea, Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my works, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Few things to take note here. First of all, Peter has this, you know, he's, he's in a big crowd, right? The Holy Spirit's fallen, and I mentioned this last week, but what we're going to see throughout the book of Acts is that some people believe that or say that the primary evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life is the gift of tongues. I would say absolutely categorically not the example that we see in Acts or anywhere else in Scripture. But there is something that we see in Scripture that we're going to see more of that this is the first time we see. Here's a guy, Peter, who denied Jesus three times, was restored, isn't really fully, you know, he's not really fully comfortable with the position he's in yet. But then the Holy Spirit falls. And as soon as they start speaking, he and the other 11, it says all of them, stood up to address the crowd. They could very well lose their lives at this point, couldn't they? They could. Like, hey, they're good. he's going to preach about Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. And they could very well pull them down and stone them. But what we see, the primary evidence of the gift of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life is this, it's boldness. And you'll see as we go through all of the people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, they have a boldness to proclaim and to be a witness and to testify of the wonderful works of God. So take note of Peter standing with the 11 and raising his voice, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words for these are not drunk 
as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, which is uh, about nine o'clock in the morning. Nobody's getting too hammered that early. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Another thing that that uh, I, I wanted to take note on, I'm not picking on these people. Well, I'd like to, but these people who abuse or misuse the gifts, um, they won't listen to me. I talk to them. They won't listen to me. But it's more important for us, for you, for all of us to be informed about it if we come across it. There's a thing that they call, and I know that it sounds ridiculous. You may have heard it before, but it's called being drunk in the Spirit. Have you guys ever heard of being drunk in the Spirit? So they say that the Holy Spirit comes upon them like it did at Pentecost, and and the Holy Spirit is just overwhelm them to the point of spiritual intoxication, and they start to do really stupid things in the name of God, like barking like dogs, clucking like chickens. There's waves of hysterical laughter, all of which really are a mockery to God. God is not a God of confusion. God is a God of order, and that is not orderly, which is exactly what Paul is going to bring up to the Corinthian church as far as these issues go later on in 1 Corinthians. And um, so this is the verse that they take being drunk in the Spirit from. They say, oh, they were perceived to be drunk, but they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So I am filled with the Spirit with the, to the point of intoxication and it's a good thing. Nope, not a good thing, not biblical, extra biblical, and you're going to get in trouble for it. Sorry. And it, can't, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on, on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I, I want to stop. I wanted to say this 15 minutes ago, but I, I would like, I know I'm rolling through pretty thick right now, but um, I want this to be interactive too. If you guys have questions, you have comments, you, you want to you know, say something, please either say something or raise your hand. But I, I'd like, you know, I, I know I'm rolling kind of fast, but I'd like to have a little bit of back and forth if, 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 you, if you want that. So in the last days, God says he's going to pour out his spirit. We covered this last week, but it's good to just touch on again that it wasn't possible. It was not possible for the Old Testament believers to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Um, now it's possible because by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are cleansed of all unrighteousness. We are fitting to house the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God is a promise to us, a gift to us from God that I believe God wants us to anticipate and want. This is kind of where I was as a young believer, um, as a new believer that surrendered my life to God. I'm a loser. I've made a lot of bad decisions. I don't want to make bad decisions anymore. I don't want to be influenced by this world. I don't want to be influenced by my friends. So I'm distancing myself from my friends that I grew up with. I don't want to be influenced by anything but you, Lord. So I need you to influence me. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. The Holy Spirit influences us to the degree that we would come to a different conclusion than we would have if we're being influenced by the flesh. It's wonderful. It's supernatural. It's a process of thinking that is not carnal, and it's different from the way the world reasons and works through things. So people in the world, maybe your friends or family, as you're being influenced by the Holy Spirit and you're seeking God and you're gaining direction from God through the indwelling influence of the Holy Spirit, it's going to look different than what they think you should do. They think you should do this. This is more practical. This makes sense. All the nuts and bolts together point to this direction. You say, you know what? I get that. I know that. I see that. I understand what you're saying, but I really believe that God wants me to go in this direction and I don't know why. That's the influence of the Holy Spirit and God 
always meets when we are submitted to and willing to be influenced by his spirit more so than the spirit of this world. Because the spirit of this world will look at you or will put the focus on you and say, you're the one that's important. You're the one that has needs. You're the one that's been trampled on. You're the one that's been taken advantage of and abused. And, and you need, you know, you need uh, good things. You need blessings. That's what the spirit of this world tells you. The spirit of God says, uh, submit to God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. It says, do not worry about any of those things. It says, trust me. It says, submit to me and I will take care of you. And it shall come to pass. And this is, you know, this is the first time that there, there, there's, a, uh, there's an action. Remember we talked about this morning, there's an action to a command or, uh, or an appeal by God. God always requires an action when he's um, asking his children, his people to do something. The man with the crippled hand, hey, put your hand out. Guy with the, with the, with the bed, hey, pick up your mat and walk. Um, go through and look, and, and, and there's, a, there's an action. There's a response required. And the action response for receiving the Holy Spirit is what? In that text, did you just look at do you see it? What's the action or response? Call on the name of the Lord. Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I loved how he ends right there. He doesn't add anything else because everybody in the world is trying to add a little bit more to the cross, add a little bit more to repentance, add a little bit more to their religion or their flavor of religion. It's a, a call on the name of the Lord and they shall be saved. Verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purchase, purpose, and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. This is one of those verses on the opposite side of the spectrum. So we have the, the people who are ultra charismatic, who are pointing to the gifts of the Spirit as evidence of the Spirit, and they turn it into a legalistic bent almost. Then on the other side of the spectrum, you have the, this is, and this is, seems like the way that it is in, in church sometimes. On the other side of the spectrum, you have the cessationists who believe that the gifts of the Spirit are not for today, and it doesn't matter because you don't, you know, we don't need them today. We've, we've, we've learned, you know, we have universities and, and we have uh, uh, seminaries and we can train ourselves. We don't need the help of the Holy Spirit anymore, which makes sense, right? No, it doesn't make any sense. So we need the help of the Holy Spirit. We got to take the pendulum, kind of bring it down the middle. But anyway, so these guys are way over here or other people who think that they can really break down and define every theological position and doctrine and purpose of God, which I think is not only arrogant, but, but really dangerous because God says, my ways are above your ways they're higher than you. And what's the last part of that verse? They're even beyond your finding out. <laughs> you can't figure everything out. I don't want you to. God says, I don't want you to. Just like to my kids. I'm like, hey, you know, I'll tell you when we're going to go do something so that you, you can get excited and you're not bothering me for 30 days before we go do it, right? I know what my intentions are and they're good for my kids, but I'm going to tell them at the appropriate time so that they don't drive me nuts and I squish them like bugs, which is what I would do if I were God. But then I wouldn't be here, so. So we have this, here, here we have this kind of clearly, more clearly communicated than in other portions of Scripture, like Galatians chapter 1, which we'll flip to and look at really quickly, uh, Romans chapter 12 uh, and 11, and as well as other places, we have this, this picture of uh, predetermination and foreknowledge of God. And this here in Acts is one of the least quoted verses for people who are of the reformed position or disposition because it does say it a little bit differently than the other places, which can cause a little bit of confusion. Look, him being delivered by the determined purpose. Another way that you can translate that determined purpose is predestined. Predestined means determined beforehand. Okay. So pretty much we're taking the pre off this and he's saying that he determined purposefully because he what? 
because he foreknew. So God knew something beforehand. Therefore, he determined and purposed it to come to pass. Flip over to uh, uh, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll see another example of this. So because God the Father had a determined purpose because of his foreknowledge beforehand to send his son to earth for us, then then our part of predetermination comes in, in Ephesians chapter 1, and we see in verse 5, Well, let's start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Amen. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to his good the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So here we have this word predestined, which means uh predetermined or determined beforehand. And and um, another way that it gets a little bit clearer, I think for me, I don't, I don't know, but what, what was the purpose? What did he predetermine to do in that verse? Adopt us as sons. See, when we look at Reformed theology, they often won't talk about the fact that, that God predestined us to be adopted, right? Which is what every adopting parent does. Am I, is, is, am I right? If you want to adopt a kid, you don't just say, you know what, I'm going to adopt a kid today. Hey, kid, you got parents? Come over here. You can be mine. You can be my son or kid. No, you say, I love kids. Kids need homes. Kid needs, kids need good moms and dads. There's kids out there without moms and dads. And I'm determining beforehand to go to the orphanage to meet those kids and to pick one out and adopt it. That's the picture that we see. God looking down at us, he says, oh man, these guys are in trouble. They're like orphans. I determined before the foundation of the earth, I determined beforehand, it was my purpose in my foreknowledge to adopt them as sons and to take them as sons and daughters. And then the theology kind of gets a little clearer, doesn't it? Yeah, because God saw our state and he determined as a whole, John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever he picked. No, that's not how it goes. Whosoever believeth in him should be saved. It's not an issue of he predetermined you to be going to heaven. He predetermined the whole world to be adopted. And there's a response on our part that we have to to respond to him. Remember the response? His requirement for response, he requires us us to respond, and then we become part of his family. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David said concerning him, Acts chapter 2, verse 25, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now, this is a prophetic psalm of Uh, Speaking of how Jesus is not going to see corruption. What kind of corruption are we talking about? Um, Man was made from dust and man returns from dust. The process of a human body returning to dust is a process of corruption. It's a breaking down. And, And Jesus was not to undergo the process of being made back into dust under the curse because he was greater than death and death could not hold him. Verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, 
that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us today. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he should raise up the Christ to sit on the throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption." This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. So who's he talking about? He's talking about the 12 of them are witnesses. Plus he says, many of you, I'm talking about Jesus Christ from Nazareth. Many of you know exactly who I'm talking about. Some of you saw what was going on. Many of these people, remember, were there at Passover when Jesus was crucified, died, and resurrected. The earthquake shook the city. Many people who were dead were raised and walking around. They witnessed this. He's reminding them that they witnessed this, and he's telling them that that it happened because Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Fast forward 50 days later, now we're at what? The the Jewish feast of, well, it's it's the feast of weeks or first fruits, but it's the feast of, uh, for us, it's Pentecost. And for them, it would be Pentecost 50 days later. This would be Probably, historically speaking, this would be the most highly attended feast of the three feasts that were required for for all Jewish males to attend. God knows what he's doing, right? Jesus dies at the Passover, buried, resurrected. 50 days later, the most Jewish influence from around the entire world will be present in Jerusalem. The city swells to two to three million people or so, and the biggest crowd is is, is, is present to, to witness the falling or the giving of the Spirit of God and, and the preaching of God's Word and an opportunity for people to respond, which they do, and we're going to see that not too much longer here. Verse 33, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Notice here in the Hebrew, this is translated from an Old Testament psalm, that the Lords are both capitalized and anything else that refers to either one of the individuals is capitalized because this is a snapshot or a picture of our Trinitarian God, our three uh, part of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I've heard a lot of people try to explain the Trinity. You, you guys have heard it too. An egg, right? You've got the shell, you've got the white, and you've got the yolk. It's like the Trinity, but the egg is one, maybe, I guess. Water has three different states, uh, liquid, vapor, and solid. Like God has three different uh, persons. But I think the best for me to understand, I'm not saying that you're going to understand it better, but for me, a better way to understand is that in Genesis, it says that we were created in God's image. And and if I'm created in God's image, there's uh, we understand, even psychology will, will attest to this. We have three different kinds of, of our person, our being. We have the body, soul, and spirit. We have the body, which is the flesh, which is part of who I am, but almost its own personality, (laughs) almost its own person. My flesh, I struggle with, but it's fallen, right? God's not. So God, the father, there's no struggling with the, the Trinity of who he is, but you have the flesh, you have the soul, which is uh, the essence of the being of who you are. And then, and then the spirit, if, if I can say, for lack of better terms, the personality of a person, we're all unique. We're all different, right? So those three things together express, all together express who Tim Warholic is. Hey, get to know me. Maybe you don't want to, probably not. But um, that, that is like, I'm, I'm created in a Trinitarian way put together. And in, in my... Uh, eternal states, is the body going to be done away with so I won't be trinity anymore? No, it's not. I'm going to receive a glorified body. So I'm going to be created in God's image in that glorified body to live with him for all eternity. So I don't know, that's a freebie. I don't know what you guys think about that, but think about it. Here we have a, a little picture of the trinity 
God and the Son speaking together before Jesus would be ascended into heaven. And the ultimate, the ultimate enemy of Jesus, really death, he wasn't scared of the people. <laughs> who, he, who cares? I mean, he spoke and knocked, knocked him over, you know. It was the death that he cried out with drops of blood dripping from his brow and said, Father, if there's another way, allow this cup to pass from me. But, but not my will be done, but yours, right? So there, there was a death, but the promise was that he'll make his enemies his footstool. And that's exactly what he did, even with death, but then ascended him uh, above all else and seated him at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Perfect opportunity for verse 21. It shall come to pass, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, right? They have this opportunity. He's going to tell them exactly what to do. But I want to take note really quick before we move on um, that there were many people whose hearts were in the right place to hear this very thing. And it, it really comes down to the same truth for us. The truth is when we are willing to accept the fact that our sin has caused us to be guilty and, and somebody else will pay the price for it. And we realize we make the connection that Jesus Christ, I'm a sinner. I recognize that Jesus wants to pay the penalty for my sin. Then we're in the place where we can uh, say the same thing. Or maybe we have. I was. I was broken. And I said, what must I do to be saved? And, and I received an answer and responded. Verse 38, Then P Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So, what's the key to being reconciled to God. Repentance, 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 repentance. This is something that the devil has been trying to get out, take out of the church for millennia. If he can take out repentance, then you're not really submitted to God and a believer. You can come here seven, day, seven days a week, Eight days a week, if there were eight days in the week, you can stay here all day long. You can sing songs and you can listen to me talk or somebody else. And you go out there and do whatever you want to do and not live in repentance. You're not in a good place. The key to the gospel is repentance. And he says, repentance, be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for what? for the remission of sin. So baptism symbolizes the dying of somebody into a watery grave, and being raised to newness of life. Notice the semicolon. I like semicolons, so I notice them. But notice the, sem the semicolon. After they're, baptiz they're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and I have that word circled because I think it's important, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what is the prerequisite for receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit? Excellent. That's it. Repentance. Now, you are going to need to get baptized, but we have other situations and other scenarios in the book of Acts that we're going to come up to where the people received the gift of the Holy Spirit before they were baptized. This would be known as the Gentile Pentecost, which isn't really a Pentecost at all, but to associate it with the day, the Gentile Pentecost with Cornelius's house and his whole family, Peter is barely finishing preaching the gospel and the people were repentant in their heart and the Holy Spirit fell on them. So there is nothing, there is nothing that is required for you to have salvation by God to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit besides repentance. And that's why repentance is so important. For you to continue to be influenced by the Holy Spirit in your life, you have to live in a continual uh, place of repentance. Just like we talked about this morning. 
Husbands, be careful so that your prayers are not hindered, right? How can their prayers be hindered? A absence of repentance in a man's life who's living in secret sin will cause his prayers to be hindered. Excuse me, I've got allergies. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. I don't think Peter realized, I don't think anybody that heard him speak these words in that day realized how true and how far that statement was going to go. <laughs> because it was, it was definitely God's whole heart for everybody to be affected and, and to receive his Holy Spirit. Um, let's look at this. As many as the Lord our God will call. What do you guys think that means? We could say, um, does that mean that God has to call you? We can talk about other church doctrine that says that you are not able whatsoever, 0% chance to seek God or want to know him without him first uh, regenerating you uh, by the Holy Spirit. I have a problem with that because of this reason. If God takes away the ability of human free will, if he takes it away, then it's not really possible for us to respond in faith to him. It's very important. It's very important that we're the ones that respond in repentance and demonstrate faith by what we say we believe. This calling, I believe, is more of a um, willingness for the preacher to preach <laughs> because God is calling everybody. And Jesus said, look out, the fields are white with harvest. Pray to the father that he will send laborers because the harvest is plentiful. You can call, call, call. They're all out there. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So it's a matter of us going out in obedience to God, to preach the gospel, to tell them every single person I meet. If I would meet every single person, I can only tell them one thing. I would say, God wants you to know who he is. He's calling you. He's calling you to have the divine purpose in your life that he destined, he determined beforehand for you to have since the foundations of the earth were laid. Will you listen to him? Will you respond to the call? And then that goes into the New Testament church too. The church that locks the door, pushes Jesus out and locks the door and says, we're going to start doing things our own way. And he says what to them? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's not talking to non-believers. He's talking to a New Testament present, that, that present day in that day church. He's saying, you guys put me outside and I want to come back in. So I'm knocking. Oh, okay. Yeah, let's, let's allow Jesus to have the authority over us again instead of us placing authority over each other. And with many other words, verse 40, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. <clears throat> now that's amazing. 3,000 people at one time is, is really incredible. Um, there were millions of people there. <laughs> so that's a good chunk. That's a, that's a, that's a nice dent, but there's a still, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done and they're going to continue to, to do the work. If we say that there were 3 million people in Jerusalem, let's not all of them heard at that moment, but 3000 people, what percentage is that for you math whizzes? It's easy because it's a tens one, right? So 3000, 3 million. What is it? Anybody know? 0.0003% or something like that. It's less than 1% for sure. I don't know. There's food for thought. Well, it's a good point. It's 0.01. Notice though, verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. The gospel of Jesus Christ is to be preached in such a way that it will bring joy to people. 
Listen, if you think that standing out on the street corner and preaching hellfire and condemnation and holding signs that say God hates homosexuals or God hates you, do you think that they're going to have much joy coming to a God of hate? No, they're not. And that's not what the gospel is. Reconciliation to God is, is, is joyful. It's glorious. And it should be something that's done in gladness. In gladness and were baptized. And that day 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in the breaking of bread and prayers. Probably one of the first verses that was ingrained in me as a Calvary chapelite. Calvary Chapel is the Acts 2.42 church. If they said they had a verse that they identified with, it would be uh, Acts 2.42. Steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. What was the apostles' doctrine? Anybody? Take a shot in the dark. Think about it. What was the apostles' doctrine? It was the whole New Testament. The Gospels that were written, the, the New Testament theology that we have through each one of the men who penned them, the, the connections that they were making to the Old Testament, pretty much what we have, what we're reading now as the New Testament is the Apostles' Doctrine, right? Written back and forth to each other with the churches that were present and growing at that day. And that's the big one. That's what we say. We say we're serious about the apostles' doctrine. We're serious about the studying of God's word. And the next thing we have here is fellowship. I had somebody come up to me after church today because the second service was packed. There was, we almost had to bring chairs out. There was almost no, no, not really many seats left. And then afterward, just lately, I don't know, the last few weeks or so or more, um, people have been staying for a really long time to hang out. Wasn't it a long time today, you think? Like an hour? Yeah. Just hanging out, big old group over here spread out in the sanctuary, hanging out and talking and, and having good fellowship in the Lord. Together in unity. So they had the apostles' doctrine. They uh, steadfastly in fellowship. In the breaking of bread, this is my favorite one, right? Because they ate together regularly. Um, we have a pizza and eat it together. That qualifies as a breaking of bread, right? Especially if you don't cut it all the way through and then you kind of have to break it apart. Breaking of bread. Or you can do that with a double-double as well. That would be breaking <laughs> of bread, whatever the case may be. So, um, But uh, on a serious note, Many scholars and theologians believe that this is a reference to the elements of communion. So the taking of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And just like you come up to the trays that we have up and all the, the crackers are broken up, his body was broken, it symbolizes that. And, and you partake of the broken body, the breaking of the bread. And, and, and lastly, and very importantly, and in prayers, that might be something that we could do more you know, instead of talking so much or allowing us to focus on fellowship or having fun. We could just stop and pray for each other more. That would be awesome. But anyway, that's us in a nutshell. That's what we want to be identified as, a Acts 2.42 church. And um, we see the Lord continue to move in his church. Verse 43, then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now, again, this isn't a fear of scaredy fear because perfect love casts out all fear. Scripture does not uh, um, go against other scripture. This is a reverence for God. And in a, in a place of reverence for God, God continued to move and make himself known, which is interesting because sometimes in the capital C church these days, it seems to me that there might be a lessening of people's reverence towards God. It's they kind of take it lightly. It's not that big of a deal to them. You know, I don't, I'm, I'm not picking on anybody here at all, you know, but, but um, you note takers, um, you're taking what you're hearing seriously. You're making notes about it in God's word. There's a level of reverence to that. 
there's some people, you know, and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to pick on the goats when they're here, you know, but there's some people that will be sitting back there and they'll be looking back, waiting for me to say something wrong, which it's not going to be long, dude. Just give, give, it a, give it a few. You'll be fine so they can have an excuse to leave or to go do something else. But they're not, they're not really there to, to chew the meat. They're there to identify the bones and, and be picky and, and um, create division and cause problems. So it, it is what it is. But um, when there's a true reverence and submittance to God, then God continues to move, and he moved through wonders and signs. A wonder is something that's supernatural, something that cannot be explained scientifically or physically, um, supernatural is a wonder that God does for you. A sign is something that you're driving down the road and you pass and it says, you know, Las Vegas, 60 miles. It's a sign. It's giving you instruction or pointing you in a direction uh, that, that, uh, that you're going. That's what a sign from God is too. He gives you a sign to confirm to you or to speak to you about something that he wants you to understand. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now I don't want to spend too much time on this, but <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> this verse is not propagating communism or socialism. That's not at all what this verse was talking about. And one of the reasons that we know why is because um, you guys remember who Paul was traveling around collecting money for on the second missionary journey? Some poor people. You guys remember who they were? The church in Jerusalem <laughs> was poor because they were still there and, you know, they had ran out of money because everybody was living together and helping each other out and they needed help. So, I, wanted, I need to paint a picture for you of what these people are going through, okay, for us to understand this verse. Imagine <clears throat> that you are a Jewish man. <laughs> Imagine that you're a Jewish man and you travel to Jerusalem. Families would do it too. You're a Jewish family. You're a man or woman that travels to Jerusalem for Pentecost one of the biggest feasts that you're required to go to, right? You take enough supplies for how long, would you say? I think the festival lasted 10 days. Let's say two weeks. Let's say your journey there, however long that's going to be, the two weeks and then your journey home, right? At what point of the, at what point of the, uh, the uh, feast did this happen? I don't know off the top of my head, and I'm not sure if it's there, but at some point during the feast, all of these people are there, right? And the Holy Spirit of God, the gift of the Father, falls on these people who start speaking in languages of the people who came to Jerusalem as pilgrims, and they hear, and at least the first day alone, 3,000 people get saved, okay? Now, if you're one of those 3,000 people, and you just witnessed what many of them would be probably saying, the kingdom of God is coming, or here, more like the kingdom of God is coming, what would you do? When the festival's over, would you go home or would you wait in Jerusalem? Most of the people were waiting in Jerusalem for the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is what was asked by the apostles in, in chapter 1. Hey, is it th this time that you're, you're restoring your kingdom? And he said, it's not for you to know the, the times and the hours that the Father has set in place, but you will receive power, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit is given to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So he never says that he's coming back to Jerusalem, but we know that there's a concentration. Their supplies run out. And hey, if I'm your friend and I'm from Jerusalem and me and you, you're from Rome, 
right? You're from Rome and you traveled for the feast. You're a Jew and I'm a Jew and there's some kind of connection. And you're like, man, I really want to stay and see the kingdom of God come to earth. And I'm like, you know what? I got some property outside the city. I'll sell it and I'll help you out so you can stay. We can, we can all be here, you know, for the, for the second coming of Jesus or for the, com- the coming of God's kingdom. Does that make sense? So they were in a place, most likely, I'm not saying definitively, but I'm saying most likely they're in a place where they're they're, they're powerfully seeing the presence of God, mighty signs and wonders happening. They're kind of getting comfortable in Jerusalem, waiting to see what else is going to happen, what's going to happen next. And because they're all brothers and sisters, and they're all there for the same reason, they're going to band together and help each other so that they're able to stay there longer. This isn't a socialism. This isn't communism. This is practically people being touched by the power of God and in compassion, helping each other out so that they can witness a a continued moving of the Holy Spirit. The problem now is, which we're going to get to in a couple chapters, the problem is it very well may be, this is a personal opinion of mine. This is not... Um, what I would say you have to believe, but it's my personal opinion that they waited and stayed in Jerusalem too long. Um, They were supposed to go. Jesus' instruction was wait until the gift of the Holy Spirit is given to you and then preach in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. We see at the persecution of Peter before the dysphoria or the dispersion of those Christians that they were remaining in Jerusalem until God had to push them out with persecution. And then that's when they go out into Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. They go back home in essence. So does that make sense? So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. A couple key words for you to latch on to if, if you'd like. Continuing daily. Uh, it's Sometimes it's difficult, difficult to continue daily, don't you think? I mean, some days I feel cool and good and I'm good to go. You know, but other days I don't want to be, I don't want to be continuing. <laughs> I'm just like tired. I don't want to get out of bed and I want to give into the flesh or, or, or blame the devil instead of taking accountability, responsibility for myself. But there's a necessity for us to continue daily. And next, with one accord in unity, there's no place for disunity in the body of Christ. Disunity most often comes when there's roots of bitterness, pride, hard hearts, and um, the big the big one, all of those things could be factors, but the big one is a lack of communication. I've seen this over and over and over and over again. So-and-so's mad at so-and-so because they heard they said this and they, they're not happy with it. And they come to me and they say, hey, Pastor Tim, I heard that so-and-so said this and, and did that. And I'm really not happy about that. You know? and, and I said, well, did you go talk to him about it? Well, no, because I'm so mad. I don't even know what I'd say. Well, how do you know they even said it if you're not even willing to go ask them if they said it? And then most of the time it's like, okay, well, I did talk. And they come back. I talked to him and it was a total misunderstanding. Well, go figure. I wonder who wants to bring disunity to the church. It's not the Holy Spirit. So why can't we just have a conversation about it and talk about it? God is not the author of confusion. The enemy is the one that wants you to be confused. God is a God of order. So we see continuing daily. We see one accord in the temple, breaking of bread from house to house. See, I told you, you got to love those breaking of bread verses. We got double doubles going on, pizza parties from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You know when you're in a really, really good mood? I don't know if this is true for you guys, but you know when you're in a really, really, really good mood that like nobody can put you in a bad mood? You're like, oh, whatever, who cares? I'm in a good mood. I would always wait until my dad was in a good mood to ask him for things. Because if he was in a bad mood, no matter what it was, it's like, you know, dad, can I pick my nose? You better not, I'll beat your butt, you know, or... Dad, can I go to the bathroom? Absolutely not. You wait 30 minutes till I tell you. But when he was in a good mood, 
oh yeah, oh yeah, sure, Tim, go ahead, do whatever you want. I'm like, yes. So I'd ask my mom, hey, what kind of mood, feel him out for me and find out because I want to go hang out with my friends tonight, but I'm not going to ask him unless I know that he's in a good mood. <laughs> True story. But they had a good reputation. They had favor with all the people because God was moving so powerfully through their lives and nothing could touch them. They weren't getting bummed out and upset about silly things that affect us on a daily basis. They were just so elated with the presence of God and what God was doing. Now, that's the end of the chapter. We're going to stop there. But I have seven facts and three necessary responses that we went through that if you're taking notes, you can jot these down or we can dialogue about them for for a little bit. Uh, This is the heart of Peter's message. Peter just preached a message to where 3,000 people respond. Peter presented to them seven facts, and there were three necessary responses. Fact number one, Peter says, By God's foreknowledge, God determined to send Jesus. Connect that to Ephesians chapter 1. By God's foreknowledge of who you would be, he prepared to send his son beforehand. Fact number one. Fact number two, Jesus was crucified, which no one understood at the time. He says that the Christ was crucified by their hands and not even the apostles, not even the closest disciples understood what was happening not even Peter himself. Number three, Jesus was raised from the dead because death could not hold him. In the Jewish mind, this had great significance. Fact number three, Jews, people, Jesus was raised from the dead because because death could not hold him and he was not subject to corruption. Fact number four, Jesus was exalted to heaven at the right hand of the Father. What this would speak to a Jewish mind of Jesus' equality with the Father, God. This was very significant as well. How is it significant for us as a non-Jew? The fact that our Savior is seated with the Father, God, who sent him to die for us. Okay, fact number five, God has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, which was the original question, right? The original question was, why are they speaking in foreign tongues? Maybe they're drunk. Ha ha ha. That's the original question. The answer is God gives the gift of the Holy Spirit. Number six. The enemies of Jesus Christ were judged. The primary enemy being death. The primary enemy being death. The enemies of Christ were judged and shall be in the future. Number six, number seven point fact, Jesus is Lord and Christ. Lord, speaking of his um, authority, Christ speaking of his title or position, Jesus is Lord and Christ. Then we move into the response section, and there were three necessary responses. Response number one was, the Holy Spirit has been sent into the world to convict the world of sin of righteousness and the coming judgment. So the number one response was conviction. They were convicted by their sins and they responded as such. Number two, what happens when you're convicted about something? What do you need to do? Repentance. You have to repent. So number one, they were convicted. Number two, they repented. And then number three was baptism. They were baptized. With obedience to these comes the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, like we mentioned earlier, the the act of baptism doesn't necessarily have to happen physically as much as it happens internally, which we even say and know that the act of baptism, when we do them in, in here, is that it's an outward sign of an inward change. It's to confirm something that has already happened, okay? So that's why we don't have to wait to be baptized because it's a change or something that has already happened. And that just symbolizes that happening or change in our lives. Good? Right on time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your study.
for this study in Acts chapter 2 tonight. We thank you, God, for the gift of your Holy Spirit, for the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And we pray that we would take up the call to preach the gospel, to love people in your name in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, starting here in paradise, starting here in Las Vegas, Green Valley, Henderson, wherever we are. We would just be diligent to allow the joy that you've given us to be evidenced by the world around us. And then if you take us to the next step, to somewhere else in the city, some outreach or to another state on an outreach or something, or even if you move us to the uttermost parts of the world, Lord, we, we want to be willing and available. We want to witness of you, but we want to <laughs> focus that not on tomorrow or what we could do in the future, but how we can do that best today, Lord. Bless these, my brothers and sisters. Bless their week in Jesus' name. Allow your face, face to shine down upon them in Jesus' name.